The Irish Times Inside Politics podcast is going to be holding another live event. This one is in central Dublin on Thursday, May the 16th at 8am. We are going to be in Medley in Dublin too. We only have a few tickets left, so if you want to join me in conversation with head of Ipsos polling in the US, Cliff Young, along with Pat Leahy and Jennifer Bray, looking at the polling in Ireland in the run-up to the European and local elections, just go to irishtimes.com slash events where you can get your tickets. Hello there and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics Podcast Wrap of the Week. From the Irish Times, I'm Hugh Linehan. Pat Leahy and Harry McGee are here to review the week for us. Good day to you both. Hi Hugh. Shalom Hugh. Speaking of which, uh, Pat, Israel-Gaza still dominating the domestic agenda. Ireland isn't the only place this is happening. We might have a word about, about the UK in a moment. But why so much? I mean, obviously the events that are taking place there are awful. We're often in here talking, you know, and awful events are happening in Syria or in other conflict zones around the world. Why does this one dominate, in this case, the Irish political agenda as much as it has done? I think for a couple of reasons. I think because it's happening on television in front of our eyes every every evening. And there is because Israel-Palestine, you know, has been a global news story since 1948 and, uh, and, and you know, therefore, you know, all media organisations have their sights trained on it. And, uh, but also I think uh, because our Irish people are invested uh, in the region, region in, in two, two ways, I suppose because Irish troops uh, are there, there has always been a sort of connection with the, with the region with this country. Um, but also, and perhaps it's linked to having uh, the troops there, I think that Irish people are familiar with and somehow invested in the, uh, in the events there. They do feel some sort of an affinity, mostly with the Palestinians, not exclusively, but I think that Ireland is one certainly regarded by the Israelis as probably the most pro-Palestinian state in Europe. We've discussed that before uh, in here. And whatever those reasons are, and there's always, I guess, kind of a bunch of reasons, I think it is clear that that is having an effect on our our politics. The extent of the investment in it and the interest in it, I think it is very much an issue in our domestic politics now in a way that... Uh, I, I I don't think it is for some countries. It maybe is in the uh, in the UK, but um, I think not for a lot of other countries. Although the dynamic Harry is is different in the UK, isn't it? I mean, we might as well might as well touch on that now. Uh, Suella Braverman, um, the Home Secretary, she is the Home Secretary as we speak at lunchtime here on Friday. She may not be by tea time. The way things are going, well, you'd wonder, wouldn't you? Even if you wanted to sack her, wouldn't you wait and see if she was proven right about the march tomorrow? If there was trouble at the march, for instance. It would look very bad for Sunak if he sacked her today and she turned out to... Be but isn't the, isn't the situation there, Harry, that, that she... It certainly seems to me, I'm not the first person to say this, that she's doing everything she can to get sacked. Um, so she, she is, but Rishi Sunak, Sunak is, 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 is uh, scared to sack her because she represents the right wing of the Tory party and that's a very powerful constituency within that party at the moment. And if she were to be sacked, I think Rishi uh, Sunak would find he's already... Uh, enfeebled position as leader of the Tory party as Prime Minister of of, uh, Great Britain and Northern Ireland, he would find it to be uh, further uh, endangered. So I think he will have to tread very softly. Although her purported crime, for want of a better word, is is quite serious, isn't it? I mean, she wrote an opinion piece which was run by 
the government. They asked her to take things out. She didn't take them out mm. and it ran in full. And she's the Home Secretary and she was highly critical of what she saw as the partisan behaviour of the Met Police yeah, in London and policing, policing yeah. these demonstrations. Yeah, I mean, she's undermining those with whom she's entrusted to to protect. So, I mean, there's a, a clear rift or, or split there that, that uh, they just cannot be re- reconciled. And if uh, Rishi Sunak were a Prime Minister with authority and with uh, power, uh, with real power, I think he would have no hesitation but to 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 ask her to resign or then there are forces. I think he'd wait and see how things play out over the weekend. He, he will, but I think his position is kind of weakened um, uh, as well. I mean, in, in Britain, uh, ministerial sackings and resignations are far more frequent than they are in Ireland. And they do, they, they, the threshold for them happening does seem to be lower than it is here. To, to resign here, you have to be at the at the wrong end of a feeding frenzy, essentially, and at the wrong end of a kind of a whirlpool of of political and and media pressure. Over there, uh, ministers do resign over what looks what what look like relatively minor uh, infractions. Not relative, I'm not trying to to euphemise it, but compared to here, they would certainly be more minor than what we have here. They're generally more mobile, right. aren't they? Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the UK cabinet is much more mobile. People are, are in position for far shorter times. There are far more reshuffles. Yeah, it's uh, bigger. You can be in like, there's 30 people sitting at the cabinet table. It's also, you're in the cabinet if somebody decides you're in the cabinet. If the prime minister decides you're a member of the cabinet, you're a member of the cabinet. Um, yeah. Whereas... You're not constitutionally limited as exactly. you are here in Ireland. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, ab- absolutely. The, the other intriguing aspect of the British response to what's happening in Gaza has been the attitude of the Labour Party and Keir Starmer uh, and the leadership of the Labour Party has been very, very resolute in its backing uh, of Israel, uh, which has come at, at a great discomfort to many of its supporters who would have a great sympathy uh, for the Palestinian cause and feel that what's been perpetrated by uh, Israel at the moment amounts to a war crime. And over here, there are very few people who don't think that it amounts to a, a war and crime. And there's a lot of internal history there, isn't there? Because that goes back to the, you know, internally in the in the Labour Party, Keir Starmer's turn a new page post-Corbyn. Oh, yes. Jerry Corbyn's yes. wing of the Labour Party was very, very strongly associated with the it, pro-Palestinian it, cause. And it, there was a whole is, but, issue around anti-Semitism as well. It, there was, but but it can't, it's, its response to what's happening can't be just seen as a response to the Jeremy Corbyn um, era. It has to be judged according to its own lights. And I think that uh, Keir Starmer's position has been surprising. I, I would have thought that at this stage, given what's happened over the past three weeks and given the the thousands of lives that have been lost over the past three weeks, uh, that Labour might have been forced to kind of reconsider its position in relation to its resolute uh, backing of what Israel has been doing. I mean, these events are proceeding as we speak in Gaza and they're terrible, as, as Harry says, thousands thousands of deaths and they're continuing. There are various things happening over the last couple of days, um, you know, short, four-hour-long ceasefires to allow people to get in and out of certain areas. But, you know, it's still all all pretty awful, Pat. I do kind of come back to my initial question, though, which is that, you know, when we talk about domestic politics here, whether it be in the UK or or, or, or here in Ireland, I mean, we're told it's the bread and butter issues that count. It's housing, it's health, it's the economy, it's those kinds of things. So is there, is there something that runs deeper about this particular subject or is it just um, performative, I suppose? No, I don't think it's entirely performative. No, I think it has... Um I think it has real world political uh, effects. I can't recall a time when international issues so commanded the domestic political agenda since, you know, back in 2003 during the uh, invasion of Iraq. I mean, uh, 
every every day it is either the chief issue or amongst the chief issues that are raised by the opposition uh, with with the government. And there is a, I think that you know there is a difference between the government's position and that of most of the opposition. Government is kind of hewing more closely to the EU line. It is more kind of even-handed uh, in a way in that it consistently recognises Israel's right to defend itself. It makes constant reference to the hostages uh, that are being held by Hamas. It makes um, constant references to Israel's right to pursue the perpetrators of the massacre on uh, October uh, the 7th, whilst at the same time stressing Israel's uh, obligation to conduct itself in accordance with international law. Whereas if you look across at the opposition, uh, certainly people before profit who are, you know, a small part of the opposition, but probably the loudest part uh, of the opposition are, you know, overwhelmingly taking the Palestinian position to the extent that they circulated a motion last night, uh, which they were seeking opposition support for, which condemned Israel, demanded that the government refer them to the international, make a complaint to the International Criminal Court, but had no mention whatsoever of uh, of the Hamas attacks or of the um, uh, or, 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 or of the, the hostages there. So I think that there is uh, I think that there is a, 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 a distinct difference between government and opposition. We see it as well on the question of the ambassador. You know, uh, Sinn Féin and the rest of the opposition want to expel the ambassador. The government is refusing to to, to do so. So, do the parties, so there is a political cleavage Do there, all the parties you know? who want to expel the Israeli ambassador also want to expel the Russian ambassador? Because, there, you know, mm. the parallels between these two conflicts have been used by all sides of the political landscape here in order to, I suppose, to point score, you could say, and to draw comparisons. For example, the condemnation of the bombardment of civilians by Russians in Ukraine and the, the lack of same in, uh, in Gaza. But equally, on the other side, if you want the Israeli ambassador to go, why, why, yeah, I think why most don't you want the, the Russian think, ambassador to go? I think off the top of my head, certainly most of the uh, parties that are calling for the expulsion of the ambassador would have called for the expulsion. I suppose it's easier to call for that when Russian you're not ambassador, in power, yeah. isn't it? Well, yes, it is. And go back to you know the, 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 the your analysis of the situation with the British Labour Party. I, I think it is consciously trying not just you know the reaction the reaction to the positions taken by Jeremy Corbyn, uh, but I, I think it is consciously trying to look like uh, a government in waiting, and therefore it is not taking those sort of positions that it wouldn't take uh, in government. I can never really understand calls to expel uh, ambassadors because um, in her um, interview with, with um, Brian Dobson several weeks ago, Mary Lou MacDonald was asked about her contacts with her, Sinn Féin's contact with Hamas, and she said, you know, to, to achieve peace, you need to talk and you need to talk to everybody, you know. So to, to continue the corollary of that argument, in my view, is that to achieve any lasting solution in terms of this conflict, you will need to speak to everybody. So I, I think that politically you'd have to question, you know, the call for expelling anybody, you know, uh, if there is a need for diplomacy and talk down the line. And that would be my one observation in relation to that. Right. Speaking of um, internal 
party uh, mechanisms and indeed preparing for government. We're in the middle of party conference season at the moment. I know it always brings joy to political correspondents because it gives them the opportunity to get away from their families and it's the ideal to way to spend the a weekend. It really is, it, it, it's, it's a political correspondence dream, isn't it? We had Fianna Fáil, at least the you know adjacent to your own homes in Dublin last week, but off to Athlone tomorrow for or this evening for the Sinn Féin conference. Yeah. The centre of Ireland. The uh... in more ways than one. <laughs> it's an interesting uh, conference could be the last conference before the next general election um, might not be um, and Sinn Féin are certainly uh, high on the hog at the moment as far as opinion poll standings are it's been doing consistently well it's polling above 30% uh, it will certainly gain seats in the next election how many seats it will gain uh, is is a subject of, of speculation but I, I, I can see over the past couple of years, but particularly since the 2020 election, that the party has been very much moving towards becoming uh, a, a government party. And you can see that in the way that it has changed its, its, its um, uh, outlook and political uh, direction. Uh, subtly in some cases, not so subtly in some other cases. For example, once uh, Russia invaded Ukraine, you saw a very quick volt fast by Sinn Féin in relation to his position on Russia. I think there might have been a residual sympathy or empathy towards Russia within the party that was quickly dispensed with. And they the par- deleted like, thousands of old statements. Yeah, they, 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 did, they, yeah. they did, and they moved very much uh, towards position where they get full backing to Ukraine. And also we've seen a, a 180 degree turnaround in relation to its position on Europe over the past decade. The party would have been very Eurosceptical 10 years ago. It moved then to a position of being, uh, quote mark, Eurocritical, close quote mark. Uh, but you don't even uh, really note that Eurocriticism anymore that the party has, uh, even though they're still involved with a, with the, uh, with the kind of a, a, a radical left-wing grouping within Europe. I think when you look at the party domestically and its recent statements in relation to Europe, uh, they've been far more... Um, uh, mellow and far more mainstream, if I can use that word, in relation to Europe than they would have been maybe five so or six years ago. So is there anything left of the radicalism then? I think they will change. I think they do believe that the state should have more involvement in terms of government. So if you were to distinguish them between, if you were to make a distinction between Fine Gael, Fianna Fáil on the one hand, Fine Gael more, more so, Fianna Fáil less so, and Sinn Féin, it's the involvement of the state in terms of how our society is well, ordered. You know, in terms of a spectrum that would also include the smaller left parties, the Social Democrats, the Labour, yeah, I mean, even, even the Greens as a, as a kind of a centre-left party too. I mean, I think where they're at this weekend, I mean, first of all, one of the messages this weekend will be, you know, we can't be complacent. We're not in government yet, you know, we have to get out and work hard in the election, etc. We don't take anything for granted. I think you'll hear a lot of that uh, over the weekend. But Harry is absolutely right that the the, 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 the second kind of part of the what they're trying to do this weekend is project themselves as, as an alternative government, government in waiting. And part of that, that's a long project that has gone on. Part of it we've seen in the last couple of years is moving towards the, the centre. And, you know, Harry's outlined a couple of things that have signified that there. You could also add, you know, the yeah, the U-turn on the abolition of the Special Criminal Court, the, um, you know, its abandonment of the pledge to get out of PESCO and Partnership for Peace uh, and stuff like that on the whole neutrality spectrum. But, you know, we shouldn't kill ourselves either. There are still 
quite significant different policy differences between Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael on the one hand to take them as one mm-hmm. political force and Sinn Féin on the other hand. Cliff Taylor did an extensive piece in last Saturday's paper where he was talking about Sinn Féin's tax policy and uh, and what it would mean. And very clearly what it would mean is a much more redistributive state that would take a lot more money from higher earners and less from uh, from lower earners. And you would have a bigger state. Now, to an extent, all parties are in, fair, in, in favour of uh, of a bigger state. But also, you know, uh, you know, we talk a lot about foreign policy here in international affairs. You know, were Sinn Féin in, uh, in government and were they to expel the... Uh, the Israeli ambassador, say, in, in current circumstances, that would place them very far outside the European mainstream and in line with countries like, you know, Bolivia and places like, uh, places like that. So those are choices. I don't think Sinn Féin will shy away from presenting those choices. So can I ask one I question just think, just about that? Just to finish that. the point, okay. I think and that the narrative ask. of Sinn Féin making itself the same as the others is is incomplete. I think what it's doing is moving towards it's on the centre, but it is... Uh, is it, is, is it looking at all at the experiences which other parties have made, which have made similar journeys in recent years? I'm thinking of Syriza in Greece, maybe Podemos in Spain as well, which ended up getting electorally penalised quite quickly, you know? Um, is it looking at their experience and trying to learn from it? I think what it has done, and I think the party has put some significant work into this, is looking at their experience, not before they got into government, specifically with regard to uh, Syriza in Greece, Podemos in Spain. It is. It has looked at their experience after they got into government rather than beforehand. And I think that they, the lesson that the party, one of the lessons that the party has digested from that is that you have to work within the system, that you have to work with the contours of the political universe as it is currently set up, rather than seeking to completely remake those when you arrive into government. And of course, that also begs the question of who Sinn Féin is going to be in government with, because we know in the current Irish political system that, you know, very unlikely that anybody wins an overall majority, even Sinn Féin. It's going to need coalition partners. It's going to have to negotiate a programme for government with somebody else or with with other partners. And it's going to have to compromise on the things that it wants the next government to yeah, do. Yeah, there are two points in relation to, to that, Hugh. Pat, Pat is, is 100% correct. What happened... Now, Podemos and Syriza were different because... Sinn Féin has been a party that's long established. It's got very, very, it's got very, very good structures. Also, coming to power in more propitious economic circumstances than it was the case. Absolutely, and we hope uh, uh, for the moment. And what happened with both parties is that they went into power, and then they had to hastily retrofit after going into power to deal with the realities with which they were confronted. Sinn Féin will have all of that groundwork done before it goes into government. So when it goes into government, it will be quite assured about where it is. Where it's what it stands for and where it wants to go. Of course, the second part of that is to which Pat averted to was that it, it's unlikely that Sinn Féin is going to go into government by itself. So it's going to go in to an, with another party uh, in coalition. So there will have to be compromise uh, there, which in a way might suit uh, Sinn Féin from a cynical 
political electoral point of view because they have promised quite a lot. So if they were to go into another party, if they weren't to achieve what they set out to achieve, uh, they could also say, well, that's what's happened when you're in a coalition government. We can't achieve everything that we do want to achieve. The other thing that we have to say about Sinn Féin that's paramount to the party, and it goes right down to the core of its existence, is that if it does go into government, I mean, the, 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 the border poll, uh, the national question, United Ireland and all of that will become a focal point. I mean, that's the, that's the, the, the raison d'etre of, of uh, Sinn Féin and that would become really important. And that'll be a very important part of the dynamic. I, mean, we should, I should just offer a health warning uh, before we leave this subject, which is that, as I think Michal Martin pointed out to the Fianna Fáil, our desk last week, there is no inevitability about Sinn Féin going into government the next time. The actual, the balance is, is relatively finely poised be, between the the potential for a, a broader rainbow coalition of some sort yeah, and, and a Sinn Féin-led government. And the, the, other, other. the other reality, Pat and Hugh, is that, that Sinn Féin will be much more scrutinised in advance of the next election than they were in 2020. 2020 was a strange election in some ways in that the election turned on, on the campaign. Uh, people wanted change. Uh, they, the, none of the parties really articulated a, a specific change that they wanted. Uh, but I think both of the other parties, the other big parties, uh, will be waiting for Sinn Féin this time and will have a far more uh, organised strategy in relation to the campaign uh, coming into the next uh, election. And people will, for once, I mean, were people seriously contemplating that Sinn Féin would be the government party before the next election? People will be aware that Sinn Féin could be the next government. And I think on that basis, they will be taking far more heed to the actual policy proposals that Sinn Féin have. Pat uh, was talking earlier on about Sinn Féin and Cliff's piece last weekend, which was an excellent piece about Sinn Féin's policy in relation to tax and personal taxation. People will be looking at those issues probably far more closely in the run-up to the 2024-2025 election than they were in the run-up to the 2020 election, in my view. We'll take a break there. We'll be back after this. And welcome back. We were talking about Sinn Féin and Fianna Fáil, uh, two of the three largest parties in the state uh, before the break. Uh, there's a new political party on the scene. Who wants to tell me about it? Harry? I, I'm delighted. Just uh, announced on Friday morning, uh, fresh off the press, like newly baked brown bread, uh, Hugh. <laughs> Independent Ireland, and it has a strong historical resonance because it's founded by uh, a gentleman called Michael Collins, who is... Not that one, though. Not that one. He is uh, an independent, or was an independent, deputy for Cork South West. So two of the TDs uh, in the current Dáil, he and another uh, independent called Richard O'Donoghue from Limerick County, have formed this new party. They were uh, formerly members of the Rural Independence Group, along with Matty McGrath, the Healy Rays, Carl Nolan uh, and a few others. And I... I spoke to Richard O'Donoghue this morning. He said that they had discussions with them with a view to uh, forming a party. But in the end, only two of them uh, decided to take the fateful leap and form this party. Uh, they also had discussions with Michael Fitzmaurice, who is the independent TD for Roscommon. Who Galway. has talked a lot himself about the, the potential need for a, the need for, for, for a new a, party. The need for it, but he, mm. he kind of resiled when asked, was he going to form one himself? So is, is this a gazumping of... Michael Fitzmaurice's efforts to start a new rural-based party. Well, now they claim it's going to be a rural and urban-based party, but I think it will be predominantly rural-facing. I think they want Michael Fitzmaurice to join in the project, but I don't think Michael Fitzmaurice is ready at this moment in time to uh, join any party. So he suggested a party, 
But when he was asked, was he going to form a party? He said it might be up to others to form a, a party. That, and that's so it remains to be seen whether he, he will join or, or not, because he, he's 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 got a very big cachet already as an independent in Roscommon, uh, Galway. He he his the constituencies have changed. So he comes mm-hmm. actually from a place called Glinsk, uh, which is on the border between Galway and Roscommon, but it's on the Galway side. When he was originally elected as a county councillor... Detail councilor, local knowledge here. Yes, absolutely. When he, was, uh, when he was elected originally as a county councillor, it was in County Galway. And he had a huge... Uh, he got a huge vote there. So he, he could run in Galway East, which has taken some territory back from Roscommon and which has become a four-seater. And if he were to run in Galway East, he, he'd be almost assured of winning a seat. And if he stays in Roscommon, he will be... He could win a seat in both constituencies. He could win a seat on his own bat in both constituencies. We've had candidates running in well, two constituencies in the past in Ireland, haven't we? Well, we've certainly... In, ha- in the north, I think, was it? Well, we, we certainly had it in the 1918 Westminster general election, yeah. I know. So, it's, see, no, no, we're no, on there, the subject of independent been, Ireland. No, there has been, but I don't think anybody who is within shouting distance of a seat. Yeah, yeah. Right. So, uh, so but I he's, mean, he's not joining. In a way, the Michael Fitzmaurice thing, you, as you lay it out there, is an example of what we've talked about before, which is the real impediment to independents joining together in a party, which is they have more to lose than to gain from it. Yes, it? I think I think so. Um, and Richard Dunne was saying, you know, that he didn't want to be an independent who was uh, standing on the ditch and shouting. He wants to be involved, <laughs> and they want to. Fair. So, I mean, perhaps, I mean, if if they do win as many seats as he hopes they win, and he thinks they could win up to ten seats in the next election. They will be part of the conversation any, for the next government. Any idea of uh, policies, uh, you know, Not anything as, like that? as yet. Uh, the two oh. things he's saying is that they want Strongly to... Strongly pro-rural Ireland. And pro-rural Ireland, 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 he said. Uh, want more infrastructure and more investment. Yeah, I, want, did, I want that, but... Politically, you know, well, I mean, maybe you should join you. Okay. But so perhaps, perhaps, perhaps there is... Perhaps there is, there, perhaps there is a space for them because he, his argument this morning was that there are people who formerly voted for Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil, who want to vote for somebody else. And that Sinn Féin is not an attractive option for them. So he was saying that this party might uh, be an alternative option for people who uh, feel disillusioned with the two former big parties and want to vote for some other party. And this might be uh, home for it. But as you said, we haven't seen any of its policies. We haven't seen the colour of its money. We haven't seen what what it stands for, uh, what it's against, what it's for, etc. So I think it's only then when it begins to kind of unveil its policies and unveil its political philosophy, uh, will we find out whether it's going to attract significant uh, uh, support or not? I saw Patrick before the podcast and Pat was making the point that they won't really do well uh, in constituencies where there's already a well-established independent there. Mm. Because which would be a lot of constituencies. Which would be a lot of constituencies. So they will be looking to pick up votes in constituency constituencies where there isn't really a, a strong independent And that therefore then they will need to find strong candidates because it'll still be very personality based won't uh, it? Inevitably as is always the case. Very much so. Very much so. As the, this is the difficulty that if you're trying to persuade and we've discussed this here before when we were talking about the possibility of Michael Fitzmaurice forming a party is that the difficulty is that there already is a kind of rural party it's just made up of a whole load of independents and for them to take a party whip to surrender their independence, to take all that political capital and support that they've built up in their own constituencies and put it at the disposal, essentially, of a party leadership, I just, I just don't see an attraction for it. Our international listeners may, may note more than our local ones because we're used to it, that the 
the power of independence in Irish politics is very unusual by international standards. I'd be hard put to think of another country where such a high percentage, and we still see it in the opinion polls, well over 10%, sometimes up to well over 15% of votes at the next election are likely to go to independence. Yeah, it is a very unusual feature of the Irish system. I think it is enabled in part by our electoral system, but also by the culture of localism, which is extremely strong in uh, in Irish politics. And you even see, you know, TDs that are members of political parties. They are very careful to be seen to be first and foremost a local representative that is charged with delivering for his local, his or her local area because that's what voters demand of them. And especially, I think, with the decline in the hegemony of the big parties. I mean, there was a time when there was only a handful of independents in the... If you go back to, say, 1997, when Bertie Hearn came to power, there was a handful of independents. Jackie Healy Ray, Mildred Fox, uh, Tom Fox, and uh, a guy from Donegal who were, in, who were in that party. There was Tony Gregory in Dublin, Dublin Central. You know, what... Over the four period, that, 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 for that yeah, election, but yeah. o- o- over the succeeding two decades, as the big parties sort of retreated and our political system splintered a bit, independence continued to grow in strength. And there's like there's what, like three separate groups of independents within the doll at the moment as uh, you know, as as, as speaking yeah. blocks. And you know, they, it does kind of baffle. People from overseas, it's one of the things about Irish politics, one of the several things about Irish politics that, you know, people from overseas find confusing is the primacy of independence here, the, or the, the success of independence here. But um, it's, I think it's here to stay. Yeah, I mean, Noel Whelan, I think it was, who coined the phrase uh, the Fianna Fáil gene pool. Um, um, and uh, I think that's so when the you collapse look- of Fianna Fáil in 2011 was a, a contributing yeah, factor to the Gale, very but, much larger but number that before, we have now. Even before yeah. that, you had mm. these, I mean, Neil Blaney for years yeah. was uh, what he called independent Fianna Fáil. And Jackie Healy Ray yeah. was a former Fianna Fáil organiser within the constituency of Kerry South who uh, became an independent TD and I suppose what those parties had the Fianna Fáil gene pool uh, independence had was that they had the sort of the loyalty of Fianna Fáil voters in the constituency with the ability to separate themselves from the unpopularity of an incumbent government. Sure. And it has proved to be and, you know, electorally the, the, a very the successful power of package. dynastic politics yeah. also played into and, that, and be it the Blaney family in Donegal or the, the Healy Rays. You know, there, there's a family thing goes on. There. Yeah, Matthew McGrath leaving Fianna Fáil was a very good example of that, as was uh, Jackie Healy Ray, that they, they provided, what Pat talked about localism and clientelism, they provided that kind of Fianna Fáil service or that Fianna Fáil you know, a traditional uh, TD kind of way of operating, but they weren't infected by, by the brand when the brand, when the overall when the brand, brand toxic, yeah. became toxic and, and unpopular and has as the attachment, that kind of cultural and familial and traditional attachment to Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael has eroded over the years. Uh, people still want aspects of that without necessarily uh, giving any allegiance to the brand. And that's why you'll see more of them coming. And Pat, of course, referred to the electoral system. Our electoral system is unusual. Our multi-seat uh, uh, proportional representation system is very unusual in the European context. Yeah, just us in Malta. 
Aston Malta. But it's also, but it's also the scale of it. It's yeah. not just the design of it. It's the scale of it. It's like ten thousand votes yeah. will get you elected, yeah. and ten thousand votes is it's not a yeah. massive amount. Yeah. Like you, know? you see, in, for example, in the UK, for example, the Green Party in the UK get regularly gets seven or eight percent of the vote, but regularly return sure. just one mm. one MP. Out of I over 600. I think thinking of those international listeners again, if they were to ask, what do these fellows actually stand for? Apart from localism and clientelism. What, yeah, but, but local, know, localism and clientelism are... Are they, are they on the left? Are they on the right? Are they the, in the middle? There's, there's, well, there's the for? full spectrum. And it isn't just Fianna Fáil, mm. by the way, that is, um, you know, that has see, been, seen people peel off because of the unpopularity uh, of, the, uh, of the party. You know, Michael Lowry... Obviously, the circumstances were slightly different there. Dennis Nocton, you know, Dennis, uh, Dennis Nocton in Fine Gael, Catherine Connolly in Galway. That was the old Michael D. Higgins yeah. Labour vote. She peeled off uh, as well. Peeled off from the Labour yeah, Party. Exactly. You know, so we've seen several from Carl Nolan and Pather Tobin have, have spun off from Sinn Fein in more recent yeah. times. There's, as well. there's a suspicion in the Irish psyche of government, but also of the big parties and the kind of plucky, local, independent, dedicated, loyal to uh, loyal to no, uh, to no man except his constituents. Mm. Uh, you know, I think there's an attraction of that too. And there have been times when they wielded um, an influence and um, we refer to Jackie Healy Ray and they, they, the deals that were done with Bertie Ahern in 2002 and uh, 1997 in particular, yeah. where a very small group of independents were able to bring to bear a great influence, especially in relation to their own constituencies. And basically, you know, deliver some pork barrel politics for their... Yeah, it is pork yes. barrel politics, yeah. Yeah. precisely. Yeah. Anyway, we're going to move on. Uh, as always, at this time of week, we ask our contributors to tell us, uh, to point to an article that they read in irishtimes.com this week that they would recommend. Harry? Um, it, it was an article that was written uh, and was, was in uh, the uh, on, on site and in the paper last Saturday by Hannah McCarthy. And uh, it was one of the kind of the by-products, if I can use that word, of the terrible conflict that's going on in Gaza at the moment. Uh, Israeli settlers uh, around the West Bank have become emboldened in terms of uh, land grabs and uh, in terms of the persecution of Arabs and also uh, Bedouin-type communities that have been living in, the, in those areas I mean, for They've been doing generations. this for a long time, but, but yep. they seem to be taking advantage of the current crisis. They've become about it at the yep. moment. There's been quite a number of deaths and there's been some very big land grabs. Hannah went out uh, to visit a community that she visited, I think, last year. And she went out. Uh, since then, that community has been eviscerated. Essentially, everybody was told to leave the village and leave their farms. And they were esen- essentially, they were, they, they, they were uh, uh, intimidated uh, shot at, shot at. One one person died, and several people were wounded. Uh, a force of Israeli settlers, armed by people with IDF uniforms, arrived into the village and essentially uh, um, purged them from the from from the village, and they were forced to flee. And she went uh, along with one of the former inhabitants uh, to view the, the the village as it is now, with nobody left there. Uh, 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 these families who have lived there for generations and who have farmed there for generations having been exiled from it uh, to be replaced by by um, very, very militant uh, Jewish uh, settlers. And it was a... It's a really strong piece. And very she's strong doing great, piece, great work there Beautifully the written. And she very also good. took the photographs for it as well. And she, she, she's she been a contributor with the Irish Times uh, for the past year or two, but she has been a, 
uh, she's added a, a new dimension to her coverage of the Middle East. So amazing yeah, I agree with that. She's doing a brilliant job. Absolutely. Well, well, well worth noting. I'm going to point to a regular feature which appears on the opinion page on Tuesdays, which is a sort of a head-to-head with two opposing views on a subject of public interest. This week, it was on the subject of, uh, sometimes contentious subject of separation of church and state when it comes to, uh, to education. Um, most of the schools, the vast majority of the schools in the country, particularly primary schools, uh, still have patronage by one religion or another, and that means that the ethos is uh, is deemed to imbue the school, the school, and religious instruction in that particular denomination is given to the school. And the reality is that ninety percent of people are not members of religious denominations in Ireland anymore, at least not practicing members. The thing I liked about this particular one is that Rob Sadlier, who's a, who's an advocate for uh, who's an advocate rather for the separation of uh, of of denominational education and the general education system, was making one point one side, and the other side rather than being from a representative of a Catholic or, or a Protestant representative, was a sort of a lapsed Catholic who's Jen Hogan, who's a regular, um, or a sort of a la carte Catholic, a, a regular correspondent for the Irish Times. And I thought that was good because actually it's the a la carte Catholics, or as she refers to them, the bouncy castle Catholics, <laughs> yeah. who, are the, who, who are the ones who are really the kind of, the, the, who end up defining the way that this stuff works. It's the, the, the rules being maintained um, as long as they have are really not necessarily down to the nefarious act of members of the clergy, they're down to the the willingness of Irish people. In the way that this goes back a little bit to what you were just talking about, independence to have their cake and eat it, and they don't actually want to see any significant change. Which to me is depressing because uh, I think it should happen. Because you're a you're a militant agnostic. I am absolutely a flag waving agnostic. Mm-hmm. I am indeed. Um, but this this is you know not to open up fresh discussion. I think, but you know this is the barrier that. The attempts to uh, get the church to now, I think in a lot of it to divest itself of patronage uh, in a lot of schools. Now, in a lot of schools, it doesn't actually mean all that much, you know. But uh, whether, who the patron of the uh, of the school is, but uh, the, the the church has been perfectly willing to um, uh, to divest itself of patronage of of schools. But every time, not every time, but in an awful lot of cases, where the parents are actually asked. Do they want their school to change? And in many cases, these would be parents who, I suspect like Jen, are, you know, quite in favour of the idea of separation of church and state. But they're asked, do they want their kids' school to change? And they don't really see a reason. No, and they're not necessarily that. that keen about handing it over to the state either. And that comes back to what you were saying about some suspicion, you know, of, of, of government too. But there is the reality is that kids, uh, and I speak from personal experience here, you end up with kids sitting at the back of the class with colouring books while they're supposed to ignore what's going on up the front of the class when religious, yes. uh, what I would call religious indoctrination yeah, is taking place. I, I, I suspect kids sitting down at the back of the class will have no difficulty ignoring what's going on at the top of the class, whether it be religion or algebra, but anyway. Well, that's a fair point. You have been looking at events in the United States this week. Yeah, um, uh, Martin Wall had a couple of pieces, uh, one of which in particular I, um, uh, I, uh, I, I, I picked out the report from the courts uh, case on, I think it was on on Tuesday when Donald Trump gave evidence for about four hours or so. And uh, at one stage, the judge, uh, the judge told him, the judge who uh, glories in the name of Arthur Engoron told Mr. Trump to keep his answers precise, according to Martin's report. And he told him, this is not a political rally, I'm afraid. However, Judge Engoron, I beg to differ because Donald Trump has turned the whole thing into a political rally and there was a bunch of polling um, 
that was published this week uh, in the states uh, as well, showing polling, actually, yeah. showing yeah. Trump with an advantage in several of the important swing states. And I, I, I think there is a growing realization. I think there had been an assumption in an awful lot of quarters this side uh, of the Atlantic, and I was talking to some people in Brussels about this when. Uh, I was over for the recent summit that the uh, general assumption was that the results of the 2020 uh, 22 midterms meant that Trump you know couldn't win the next presidential election that assumption I think is changing now and I think the prospect of a second Trump presidency is you know really on the agenda in a significant way and, and that is in the Democratic Party about prospect. Biden because yeah. judging by those polls he's the one who's dragging the Democrats down yeah but it's too late to throw him out now and who else is there in the Democrats who no. could beat Trump Biden's their only hope now at this stage yeah. he's not a great hope so can I just say Martin has had a terrific week this week Martin Wall hard working uh, Washington correspondent because he was also covering the Molly Martin's uh, uh, Jason Corbett case and tremendously as well so he, Which was he, a sort of fascinating kind of a yeah, case. Not, it was, not, it was, not, not a, I mean, obviously, you know, very sad, but it did have a kind of a movie quality to it as well. Mm, yeah. anyway. not, not, not the sort of movies I watch. Of course not. Yeah. Um, so I'll, I'll let you get back to your perusal of 1930s German art house cinema. <laughs> but for the rest of us, we're going to have a little more lighthearted weekend and we will leave it there. Thanks to Pat and to Harry. Thanks to our producer, Declan Conlon, and our engineer, JJ Vernon. We will be back sooner than you think. Until then, thanks very much for listening. <laughs>